All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. Let's look at verse number 40. Acts chapter 5, verse number 40. We'll read from verse 40 down through verse number 42. All right. The Bible says, And to him, to Gamaliel, they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for the Lord Jesus, uh, for loving us, for caring, as Brother Ari saying. Uh, for us. Thank you that you're alive, that you're well able to help us, and you're well able to sustain us. Thank you for the history that you've put in your word. What a great blessing it is to us, Lord, that we stand in a company of the saints who uh, love you and want to serve you, and we pray that you'd uh, bless this, this message tonight and your people as they hear the word, as we study it together. Lord, give me wisdom and grace to know what to say and how to say it to encourage and strengthen your people. And I pray as we look at the, uh, the passages of Scripture, the various verses, uh, the various truths that we'll see, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would indeed be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Now sadly, as we see in verse number 40, um, the, the history of the church is spotted with, uh, it is a history of oft persecution. Hold your place here really quick and look at Revelation chapter 2. Look at Revelation chapter 2, actually chapter 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 contains seven letters. A letter to from the Lord to the, each of the seven churches that are mentioned here in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And what you, I just we're not going to study this, of course, tonight, but there's a letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Thyatira, Philadelphia. Oh, I skipped Thyatira. Here we go. Yes, Thyatira. Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And what you'll notice is that when you look at these letters to the churches, there are periods, and these of course, and one day, one day we'll have an opportunity to study this, but suffice it to say that not only are these actual seven literal uh, letters to literal churches in the first century, but they have reference also to periods of time. And what you'll notice is that um, is in the church, for instance, in Smyrna, the Bible says in verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, the synagogue of Satan. He says, fear, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Then you look at the church at Pergamos, and then he says in verse number 13, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was, who was slain among you, where Satan 
dwelleth. And then you have, of course, Thyatira, which deals with things not so much related to, uh, to persecution. You go to Sardis. Again, we're not, there's not a, a great deal of persecution mentioned, but what you see in these letters is a number of times that persecution is mentioned. And as I said, persecution throughout church history is, is a frequent occurrence. It's not uncommon for the church of God to be persecuted. And it's not really a surprise to us because the, the very great commission of the Lord, we said, behold, or he said, lo, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The very fact that the Lord great, gave the great commission was necessary because he knew ahead of the church was persecution. In other words, people were going to try to stamp this way out. That's what was going to happen. He knew that. That's why he gave, one of the reasons he gave us the Great Commission, because by giving us that Great Commission, he overruled all of those things. In other words, he says, you have it directly from my mouth. This is what I want you to be doing, regardless of what men tell you to do or forbid you from doing. And that's part of the Great Commission. And, and that's also what we see here. Uh, the church has always has always, I don't know if I would say thrived, but definitely there is some thriving because sometimes a church contracts as a result of persecution. It cuts, maybe it cuts the fat off, the excess, some, some people who aren't so serious and especially false believers that sometimes slip into a church. We've already discussed this. In periods of liberty, the periods of persecution will, will kind of filter the, those kinds of people out and it kind of makes the church lean and mean, right? Lean and mean, we might say. But that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the things that has existed during the church age over the years. And it's not just uh, in the early days. The great periods of persecution in the church first occurred under the Romans. And then that stopped under Constantine in the 300s. And then there were later periods of persecution uh, just prior to the Reformation that uh, in which Christians were greatly persecuted. So those, uh, that's not an unusual occurrence. But we see here in verse number 41, or verse 40, they're commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. They were beaten. They, blood was drawn. Blood was drawn by the apostles. And they were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. And in verse number 41, notice what it says, which is, a, which is an unusual thing considering that when the Bible says they were beaten, you might think of a belt. <laughs> you might think of a belt because of the way you were raised, perhaps. But this is far worse than a, than a whooping in the woodshed. This is, this is a whooping to draw blood. This is to mar your flesh, give you scars permanently. This is not a, a simple thing. It's not something any of us would ever want to endure, but they were beaten and then they were threatened. Verse 41 says, and they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Isn't that odd? Rejoicing. If you got pulled over and a cop gave you a criminal citation, I hope this wouldn't happen because you're not supposed to be persecuted for the evil that you do, right? But if that did happen, would you go away from that traffic stop rejoicing? If you were out passing out gospel tracts in downtown Greenville 
and a police officer stopped you and arrested you for some reason and, and you spent the night perhaps in the Greenville County Detention Center, would you rejoice? You see, this is the, very, the polar opposite of what our natural reaction would be. But this is not the first time this is mentioned. And it's also not the second or the third in the Bible. The idea that Christians, God's people, the disciples, rejoiced, rejoiced that they were persecuted. It's, this here is otherworldly. <laughs> we might say it like that. This is not natural. This is not, this is not something you would ever find on the earth. This is otherworldly. Look at Matthew chapter 5, if you would. I want to ask a question. Why would a Christian rejoice at suffering? Why would a Christian re rejoice at suffering? So I'll look at a few verses in Matthew and answer some of these questions. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. This is at the very beginning of the Lord's ministry. The very beginning. Notice... This is the Beatitudes. I love the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of my most, most favorite. It's one of my favoritest passages of Scripture. Where's Miss Lynn Aguilar? I should, I should be getting. She's probably going to pick up her sons, right? But anyhow, this is one of my fav most favorite passages of Scripture. But notice what it says in verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Notice that. The Lord says they're blessed when men revile you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like when people say bad things about me. I don't like that. I don't like to be persecuted, and I don't like to be slandered. But the Lord says, those that are persecuted for, for righteousness' sake, those that are persecuted for the name of Christ, are blessed. Now, what's interesting is I was reading a book by, I think it was John Leland, who was an influential Baptist pastor in the early, before the Constitution was ratified. Anyway, one thing he was talking about when it came to persecution, I think it was him, I might be getting it confused, but oftentimes what it said was that those who endure persecution are almost universally the good guys. And those who apply the persecution are almost universally the bad guys. In other words, the very fact of the presence of persecution often is kind of a mark. It's kind of a, it's kind of a mark of, of, uh, of, we might say, genuineness. There are some exceptions to this throughout history. But really, when someone's persecuted, the fact that someone endures persecution, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, something came to my mind, the... Uh, the Mormons, the Mormon church, you know, they have their elders who are younger than everyone else, but they have their elders with their little name tags and bicycles, and they go around and, um, and proselytize their religion. And sometimes I've heard that in their, they, they describe the persecution that the early Mormon elders endured, things like 
you know, just terrible things like heat exhaustion and people would not invite them into their house and they describe the, I mean, this is nigh into martyrdom. These, these young men suffered when they were trying to spread their religion. And no, I, I'm, being, I'm being sarcastic because they presented these types of things as if it was some, some great task. When we read in the scripture, these men were beaten. They shed their blood. And we find eventually they gave their, they gave their very lives. And I say, I mention the Mormons because the oftentimes, uh, th- that's why I mentioned the fact that the, the, a mark of almost, almost a, a reliable, you could say, a mark of genuineness is those who endure persecution. Because unless you got the real deal, that's not something you're, you're interested in. That's not something you're wanting to endure. Uh, unless you are absolutely persuaded of the reality of that thing for which you are standing. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it unless you have the Lord's word on this matter of righteousness or unrighteousness. Just go along with it. Just go along to get along. That is, that's the philosophy of this world. Do whatever you have to do to make your life easy. And it is only, it is only a few that are willing to, to uh, bear suffering for righteousness and for the name of Christ. And so that's why I say it's, a, it's almost like a mark of genuineness. But we see in, uh, in uh, Matthew 11, the Lord said, uh, Matthew chapter 5 rather, the Lord says you, they, they are blessed who endure persecution, who are slandered for righteousness' sake, for the name of Christ. Now in verse 12, that's what it says that, that matches what our, our verses in Acts 5 say. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Now I ask the question, why should a Christian Rejoice in sufferings for Christ. Now, we're not in these kinds of sufferings, we're not referring to suffering that comes as a result of living in a natural world, a fallen world. Things like disease, things like cancer, things like accidents. That's not suffering for Christ, although the Lord definitely has empathy for that, right? He definitely has empathy. He had empathy upon Mar- Martha and Mary when their brother Lazarus died, and that was not suffering for the name of Christ. Now, later... They wanted to kill Lazarus because he was with Jesus. You remember that? Now, that was suffering for Christ. That was what we read about here. But this is specifically the suffering that comes because you are a believer or because you you are, are trying to live in righteousness before God. He says, why should a Christian, why rejoice in sufferings for Christ? First of all, because our reward is great. You see that? For your great is your reward in heaven. So this is not just a natural reward, a regular old reward for regular old faithfulness. This is a, this is a notch above. Not everybody gets these rewards. This is a large reward. All right. Second thing, look what it says. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now I thought about this. This is a reason to rejoice in the context. This is why. For so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. Especially talking about the Old Testament prophets. Now, when we live in our day, sometimes, of course, we like to, we read the Bible and we read about people in Scripture. We read about the Joshuas and the David, Davids and the Samsons and the Moses and, and, and the, the various 
characters in the scripture who are all historical figures. We read about them. We read about Paul and Silas being in jail. We read about Timothy and others who were persecuted, the apostles, as we've been reading in the book of Acts. Sometimes we have a hard time gauging where we are in relation to those people. Those people seem off, kind of far off in the distance. They're separated from us by great, great spans of time, by distance, by culture, and all these things. And we read about it in the Bible, and we believe it, and we know it's there, but we look at ourselves, and it's hard for us to gauge ourselves by what we read. Are they like us? Are we like them? Because, of course, we see them as our example, and we, we, I know I, I ask, Lord, am I, am I like them? Do I have what they've got? Do I, am I that, do I have the commitment that these people had? That's, have you ever asked yourself that question as you looked at some of the, do I have this kind of faith? And it's hard to know because they seem so far off. But when persecution happens to you now, and when it happens for the Lord's sake, all of a sudden we're counted among them. All of a sudden they're no different than we are. Their faith is no greater Listen now, their faith is no greater. Their commitment is no greater. They suffered slander, persecution, pain, suffering, and loss for the name of Christ. And when we experience that, we're counted among them, he says, for so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. All of a sudden, these apostles, who, of course, this is going to be fulfilled literally, all of a sudden, they're grouped with these noble people like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, these noble characters like Hosea and Moses and David, the Jehoshaphats, these people who are faithful to God and these apostles are like, man, these prophets are way up here. They're awesome. And all of a sudden, we're, we found, find ourselves in the same place where they were. And you know what we find? We find that we are just as faithful and committed and we, we exercise just the same amount of faith as they did. They're no different than we are. They're just weak humans in whom God is working. And so we, one reason we rejoice is because we're in good company. Those are our people. We're like them. And you know what? That makes us feel good. That makes us, that, that just gives us kind of a warm fuzzy to know that what they're doing, we're doing. What they endure, we endure. That, that we're, we're all together. And if, if they did great things for God, we can also do great things for God. Because as they suffered, so we suffer. As they take their stand for righteousness, so we take our stand for righteousness. Now, I know in our times, uh, in, our, in our time and in our uh, world, like our bubble, our sphere. We've said this before, per persecution is not a, it's not a major issue, I would say most of us face. It does happen from time to time. Most of the time it comes in the form of having to take a stand against some wicked thing, maybe at a job, and then people, people do what revile us or slander us behind our backs or try to get us fired, especially in this current environment where, you know, trying to, uh, uh, you know, go after people because, you know, they, they don't believe like, you know, whatever the, the standard line is or whatever. Those kinds of things are on the increase. But what 
But you got to remember that in other parts of the world, it's not that way. In other parts of the world, persecution is a daily problem. That, I mean, Christians in 2023, in places not far from our own country, people suffer, suffer, because they're a di- they're, they, they believe a different thing than their mom and dad, or, beca- or they, they lose their job. There were, there were people even in Cambodia who, uh, who, who suffered, suffered loss of, of income and, and those kinds of things because they were a believer. And you say, well, you're not allowed to do that. That's against the law. Well, you better be glad you live here because it ain't like that everywhere. <laughs> they can fire you for no reason. So it does exist. It does exist. But even among us, it does exist. But we take heart. We take heart knowing that we can be like them because we endure the suffering that they also endure. That's why the Lord tells us, you're just like them. Like the prophets were persecuted, so you're persecuted. You're, you're, in, the, you're, in, a, you're in a line of a good company of people. Good company of people. Good company of faithful people. While you're in Matthew, look at chapter 16. <coughs> if you live for God... There's no way to avoid the suffering. Matthew 16, verse number 24. I'll say that again, just in case we miss it. If you live for God, if you live for God, that's the key, key conditional, you cannot escape some measure of suffering for righteousness. Jesus said in verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See that? Now, Brother Roberts preached this, and he referenced the verse that includes the word daily. We'll see that in a minute. But notice, take up his cross. What was the cross? What was the cross? That was the means by which Christ was persecuted. He suffered for doing the will of his Father, right? The cross is not, again, we're not talking about natural suffering. The cross was not natural. The cross was not cancer. The cross was not a heart attack. The cross was an implement of torture and execution. The cross was, the cross represents persecution to the Christian. Now, of course, to us, it also represents what Christ did for us, of course. But when the Lord says, take up his cross, referring to our own, take up, take up our cross and follow him, he's referring to the, the persecution that comes from being a follower of Christ. He says, take it up. Because if you're going to follow him, as he went, so we walk behind him. As he carried a cross, so we will carry it. The question is, are we faithful enough to pick it up and go after him? Philippians 1.9 says this, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, look back at... Um, Look back at 1 Peter. We'll look at a couple places in 1 Peter. I'm asking the question, why rejoice in sufferings for Christ? And then we'll look back at Acts to conclude. 1 Peter chapter 4.
First Peter chapter 4. Look at verse number 13. Reasons to rejoice. Read verse 12 just for context. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice. There it is again. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Notice that. Rejoice, glad, happy. The Lord tells us in advance so that when it come to pass, we are, we are not taken aback. We understand that we are partaking of his sufferings. And that's one of, that's one of the reasons that a Christian is to rejoice at sufferings is because he is taking part. He is, you might say he's unified with Christ. Just like we died with Christ. The Bible teaches that we died with Christ, right? Doesn't it say that? We're crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, we're raised with Christ. We're in Christ. The Bible says we're in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We're in Christ. So in every way, we're baptized after the pattern of Christ. We follow the example of loving our enemies like Christ. I mean, how many, how many things can we go over that we are to mimic the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, one of the reasons we rejoice is that it's not always, but sometimes Christians are called upon to suffer like Christ, to partake in his sufferings. You know what? Anything a Christian can be or do that makes them more like Jesus, they rejoice. Think about that. Now, you might not rejoice, we not, might not rejoice in the slander or the pain or the loss, but we rejoice that we're like Christ. You see that? Because to a, to a believer, that's one of the that's one of the, the a disciple of Christ. That's one of their greatest desires is to be like Christ. And then in verse number 14, I read it as well. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Why? For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. I, say, I look at this and I say, this is God's approval. This is God's approval. And then, of course, in Romans 8, very quickly, because I want to get back to Acts will be glorified with Christ. Romans 8, 17, will be glorified with Christ because we suffered with Him. That's related to the reward that we'll receive. Now go back to Acts chapter 5, if you would. <clears throat> Verse 41 says, And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Notice it says that they were counted worthy. That's interesting, to suffer shame for his name. Normally, you would never rejoice in being shamed, but they are rejoicing in the shame. They're count, and they're rejoicing in this, in this case because they were counted worthy. You know what that means? That's related to what I just read in, in chapter uh, 1 Peter 4.14. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. You know what that means? The fact that they were counted worthy means that not everybody is going to be, if I could say, selected for this task. Not, not just, it's not just any old Christian that's going to be persecuted, any old believer, any old, uh, uh, you might say, mediocre 
follower of Christ, any, any old mediocre or, uh, you know, just common believer who is not serious about following the Lord. No, the Lord, those, those people, the people, the peop, I, I say those people, we people like that, that are mediocre, we have enough trouble just staying faithful to God without persecution, right? No pressure. No pressure. But in this case, the Lord looked at them and said, I think I will permit them to go through suffering. I will open the door of suffering for them for my namesake because they're worthy. You see, it's an honor. It's a mark of distinction. That's what it's saying. That's the way they viewed it. That's the way they came out. They had scars on their back. Is that not what Paul rejoiced in in 2 Corinthians? Wasn't it 2 Corinthians? He says, he says this is what I glory in. Stripes above measure. <laughs> right? He says, this is, this is what I glory in. This is my mark of honor. This is my accolade. The stripes. You see, we're counted worthy to suffer. The spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That means God approves. So that, I know that's contradictory and it's counterintuitive to say, God approves of you, so he allows you to suffer for his name. But that's what the Lord, that's what the Lord is saying. That's what the Lord is saying. But you know what? None of these things matter. And it only matters if our heart and our mind and our sight is firmly set on that which is above, not on things on the earth. That's the only way a, a Christian, a disciple of Christ, can rejoice in sufferings, is that his eye is not on the pain and suffering and loss here, but his eye is on the Lord and the Lord's smile upon him there. The reward that is laid up for him, the great reward that is laid up for him there. That's the, that's the only way you could possibly rejoice in suffering. That's the only way. And that's exactly what they did. 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 19, listen to what it says. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Is that not true? The Lord allows us to suffer. The Lord allows us to be slandered and persecuted and people say mean things about us and avoid us. Did you know that's a form of persecution? When men cut off company from us, separate company from us. That's a form of persecution. They just don't want to be our friends. How many of you have probably been persecuted as a result of that? Friends cut you off and say, I don't want to be around them no more. They get on my nerves. Talking about Jesus all the time. Now they don't do everything we used to do. That's a form of persecution. But if we endure all of those things as a believer, but this life is all there is, and there's no reward, there's no Lord in heaven risen waiting for us who's going to look upon us and examine our works and say, well done, good and faithful servant. If, there, if none of that's true and this life is all there is for us, then we are most miserable. <laughs> we are most miserable. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying. And I look at verse number 42. I'll just make a couple comments and we'll be done. The crux of this verse are the two, two words in the middle. I love it. I love it. Ceased not. 
They're commanded a couple times by the highest religious leaders in their society, forbidden from speaking in the name of Christ. And what was their answer? They ceased not. We're not going to comply. We're not doing it. It's a right and proper time for a Christian to say no. We're not doing it. You know, we look at this and we think, you know, we have the First Amendment, the right of the people to, to, uh, to exercise their, their religious faith. You say, this could never happen in our country, and it can happen in our country. And it has happened. People have been persecuted in our country for the name of Christ and for righteousness' sake. People's children have been taken away from them. The government has levied fines. It happens in various counties, municipalities, states, in our nation. It does happen. We, 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 we have lulled ourselves into this false sense of security that because we have a Bill of Rights, it doesn't happen. But that is diminishing. The respect for the Bill of Rights is diminishing. It's not, it's not increasing. It's going down. And legal ways around it are being invented every day to shut the mouths of Christians. But notice, just so I don't lose track of time here, notice what verse 42 says. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. By being undeterred by persecution, they won victory over it. The persecution, the persecutor said, be quiet. And all they did was cease not. They just kept. They didn't have to win some big fight and they have to take up arms. All they had to do was say no. No, all they had to do was live no. <laughs> they didn't have to say it. They just live no. And by that they won. By that they won. Now notice it says daily. Daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. These were not Sunday Christians. These were not Sunday Christians. We have a plague of Sunday Christian COVID in our country, especially in the South. We have a plague of that. Those who are believers and Christians in, at least in practice, if not in word, only on Sunday. These were not Sunday Christians. These were daily Christians. The first century Christians were daily Christians. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, verse 17, verse, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 19, verse 9, Hebrews 3, 13. All, all tell us that we should be exhorting one another daily. We should be living for the Lord daily. We should be trying to reach the lost daily. I should be trying to reach the lost daily. I should be living for the Lord daily. I should be caring about how my walk is, my conversation, my manner of life daily. And it, listen, it's not about the church. It's about the Lord. It's not about shaming the church. It's about shaming the Lord. The first century Christians were daily Christians, right? It was when they were, work, work, when they were at work Christians, when they were at school Christians, when they were at the grocery store Christians, when they were at home Christians, when they went to bed Christians, when they got up Christians, they were daily Christians. You know what? That's the only kind. That's the only kind. And daily in the temple and in every house, 
So not only were they daily Christians, but they were not private Christians. They were public Christians. Notice they were in the temple and in every house. They didn't, they didn't limit their faith to their private dwelling where nobody knew it. They weren't just private Christians. They were also public Christians. They were unashamed. You know, it'd be good. It, even, listen, it'd be good just as an exercise. Here, here in, toward the end of the month of September, we're going to have a time. We're going to go downtown Greenville, and we're going to pass out some gospel tracts. You know, it doesn't take any skill at all to stand on the street corner and hand out a gospel tract to somebody that comes by. But you know what you will get? You'll get a little bit of persecution. You'll get some people sneer at you just not because you did anything, just because you stood there and smiled. They're, they're, they'll sneer at you. They'll say nasty things to you. Sometimes they'll, they'll use profanity in your direction. They'll do those things because of what you represent. These were public Christians. They were not ashamed to be in public representing Christ. Let me challenge you. When we have a public evangelism opportunity, just as a matter of exercise, be there. Do it. Be seen. Be known. Be numbered. I, I just challenge you to do that. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not trying to shame anybody at all. Take that opportunity to be a public Christian. To stand before God in the world and say, this I represent the Lord. I, I'm one of these crazies. I'm a crazy. Are you willing to be a crazy for the Lord? Because that's what they think you are. You come to a church like this, they think you're crazy. You stand on the street corner, they think you're really crazy. You don't have to have great skill. But if we want to be a first century Christian, we're going to have to be a public Christian. One who doesn't keep our faith private, but it's public. Now, lastly, the Bible says, And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. This group, these Jerusalem Christians, were not content to have their little group to worship in secret. Remember after the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 19, the disciples were met together and they had shut, they shut the door. And I don't know if it says they locked it, but I imagine they would have if they had had a lock. And it says they, they were gathered in secret for fear of the Jews. They're not like that anymore. And they've got a lot more to be afraid of now because now there is active persecution going on. It's getting worse, but they're not in secret. You see, what I want you to understand is oftentimes those that are enemies of the cross, that's exactly what they want. They want us to keep our faith, our gospel, our Lord private. You say, you just go to your little church, you have your little whatever, and you just keep it in there and everything will be fine. It's when it comes out, we got issues. And often, just as a, just as a matter of fact, in, in different countries around the world, private worship services are permitted in many places, but not outside of that building. In other words, they allow it inside, but that's the limit. They don't allow anything outside. Even in places where it's, it's very restrictive, sometimes even in places like 
in Muslim-dominated countries like Saudi Arabia, private Christian worship services are permitted, but nothing outside. You see, that's, that's the goal. Shut the gospel down. Keep your faith private. Do not speak of it publicly. But these first century Christians were not content with that. They were not satisfied with disobedience because the Great Commission required that that their faith be public, that their faith be spread. It was not enough for them to be in their little church, having their little group. Listen, I'm telling you, many, many churches. In fact, Brother brother Tim Perry, their their church is preparing to buy a, a, a building that was... Uh, another denomination had, but that denomination, they're, they've dwindled down to nothing, just have, have some older people and they can't maintain it and everything. And, but that's the kind of the mentality is, well, we'll just have our little service and that's it. But that's not good enough. That's not first century Christianity. We don't want just our little group. We don't want just our little group. That's not good enough. We want the gospel to spill out into the community. I know, listen, I know that's hard. I know it's scary sometimes. You know, we go knocking on the doors. You don't know who's on the other side of that door. Like, like Brother Roberts was saying, and I know all of you thought it. You know, you go knock on the door and hope that nobody answers. I know that you guys have thought it. They've knocked on the door. You knock on the door. You're knocking on their door to, to summon them and at the same time hoping they don't actually answer. But you know what? We do it anyway because we recognize that we're weak. But we do it out of obedience to the Lord because the Lord doesn't want us in our little private group. He wants our our faith to spread. He wants His Word to go out. And so we do it. So we do it. Just a few of the ways this first century church ceased not. Ceased not. Let's pray.